0: Question for us to consider. What is something that makes you feel, feel awe? I emphasize that word feeling. Even in a, in a visceral reaction, gets you inside. Maybe it's something, you see a few pictures here. Maybe it's something like the amazing view of Everest. A mountain that high. Or it could be the depths of the Marianas Trench down at the bottom of the sea. There's still stuff alive down there. those miles deep. Or maybe it's the Grand Canyon and the colors and the vastness of it or the the depths that Angel Falls descends. Or on the other side, the, the sculpture, the creativity of someone like Michelangelo. Or maybe it's something even closer to home that you could experience the forgiveness, the forgiveness of the Lord, and to be loved by God. Maybe that's something that grips you and gives you awe. Awe, and I mean awe. You'll hear me say sometimes, it's not awesome when little Billy blows his first bubble. That's that's really cool, That's really neat, but awe is something God-inspiring. And Hebrews is going to paint a panoramic picture of the awe that we have for Christ compared to many other, not bad things, good things, in good people, but that Christ is so much more awesome. Thaddeus Williams says, that we were created and designed to run on awe. You and I, created, designed to run on awe. Even in the Old Testament, the word yura, reverence, awe, shows up over a hundred times in the Old Testament. We're created to run on awe. And we're going to call this morning the sermon Sounds like something a little child would come up with. You know, my daddy's the best. Mine's the best of the best. Do I'm the best? Jesus is the best of the best of the best. In the big idea that Howard mentioned earlier, sorry for the audible good football term though, Howard, you nailed it. In a culture satisfied with too little, we are called to experience awe. That's what we're called to. With that in mind, if you would stand for the reading of God's word, a little bit unusual for us. This is a short one. We also often have you stand for 30 verses or so. This is so dense, so powerful, four verses. The author of Hebrews writes, God speaks. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, As the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, indeed help us simply this morning to experience, to appreciate, to be more in awe of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So as we enter into this magnificent book, a little bit of around keeping a little background, quick points of background for this book. The first point, the author. You heard me when I read it, I said, the author of Hebrews. Who is it? We don't know for sure. We'll admit that. Okay. A lot of people say Paul. To me, it seems a little different than what how Paul would write. There's no greeting, and Paul usually mentions himself. Not a big deal though. We don't know. But it is somebody who was familiar with the audience. Right? Chapter 13 mentions being restored to them. So the author knew his audience. He had some affinity with them. I think maybe Barnabas or Apollos, but no big deal there. It's an inspired word of God. The audience persecuted Jewish Christians. Persecuted Jewish Christians. Also applies to persecuted gentle converts also applies to you today. Written through the Holy Spirit. Place. Likely either Palestine, we know that word nowadays, or Rome. Okay, one of those two locations. Time likely before A.D. 70. A.D. 70 is kind of a key date because what happened then Destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. The author doesn't mention that. So probably written before AD 70. uh, Purpose. Purpose of the book. To persevere, to encourage this audience to persevere to full maturity and grow deeper, deeper in their faith and awe of Christ. Don't fall back. Don't fall back. Don't need to go back. Push on, persevere. All right, so let's look at the first verse. I want to follow along there. Long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke. So think of a puzzle for a minute. Think of a puzzle, all these pieces. First of all, that passage says that many times, times, so from Genesis on through the time of the author, God spoke in various ways okay various ways what do we mean there god spoke through visions he spoke through angels he spoke through events he spoke even through the urim and thummim those you know those that the, the priests would say i don't know what we should do let me get out these stones There's yes no question mm, yes okay god even spoke through that way and and he spoke through the prophets mainly often Through prophets. Each one of those prophets, largely what they were doing was calling out the people at that time, do this, don't do this, you're not honoring God, and so forth. But they also gave a piece to that puzzle, because each one of the prophets was often, like we'll see a few of these, giving a piece of the puzzle to where the Savior, the Messiah, was coming. In other words, this, Noah, we don't often think of him as a prophet, but he was, he gave kind of the quarter of the world, you know, this is where the Savior will come from. Then we zero in a little bit further. Abraham will come from this nation. Jacob will come from this tribe. David will come from this family, getting more and more specific. Micah, here's the town. And then wrap up the Old Testament, Malachi. Here's the guy who will be the forerunner to Christ. So you can see at each one of these prophets being a piece of the puzzle to say, keep your eye here, be ready, be ready. The Savior's coming. And notice it says they knew this because God spoke. So back to verse one, God spoke. There was no proof needed God spoke. They knew it, and they were thankful for those words. They weren't always thankful for the prophets. They should have been, but the prophets gave them those words. So quick application for us is just this point, that we can and we should appreciate the past, but we don't long for it as if a return to, if only, if only it was like this before COVID, or if only this, or if only this, as if that'll solve all your problems, or my problems. And we often do that out of fear. Scared of what's coming, I just wanna go back to the known, or a longing for ease. If only I could have this, then I'll be set. Now, Lot's wife, think back to Lot's wife, she looked back, oh, I wanna go back to the ease, the comfort, I don't wanna go with you, Lord. But Christ is better. Christ is better. Hebrews is saying, Christ is the ultimate. Don't look back. No need to look back. When I think of le- looking back, I think of Levi, our son. When I take Levi to practice, realized or a game, I realized, hey, he's asking me to drop him off. Like about a tenth of a mile from the gym. It's like, oh, okay. He's just gonna get a little extra warm-up in, right? Good, good for you, Levi. And I put two and two together. It's like my '98 uh, Honda Accord. It kind of has a little jump, a little shudder when you go from first to second, second to third, and it doesn't look. It looks like a '98. So Levi doesn't want to be seen in the uh, Honda Accord. Levi will not look back fondly on the Accord. He'll be looking forward to the whatever is bigger and better he won't have that problem of looking back. But we're not necessarily saying that it's all about look forward to, oh, hashtag best life yet, health and wealth. No, that's not what we're saying either. In verse 2, passage says this, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Last days, not chronological like there's one day two days ten days go on the mountaintop jesus coming not that more of a theological term the author of hebrews was in the last days just as we're in the last days and we're thousand plus years apart once christ was resurrected we're in the last days until he comes again more of a theological term a time hard For the audience to keep the faith remember that persecuted persecuted how about us is it hard matt you're a christian oh god bless you sweetie do we get that no no or you're old-fashioned right in the class just this morning you gave us all you're old-fashioned you're uneducated you're bigoted you're judgmental Christian, but we don't need to give in. One of the beauties of apologetics, again, we heard in the class, it helps to strengthen our faith. It help, uh, helps us to recognize the errors in the opponents, what they're attacking us and persecuting us with. To that point, in the UK a few years ago, there was what was called, I think, the Atheist Bus Campaign. And you would see these buses with these messages here. There's probably no God. Stop worrying. Enjoy your life. Okay? Get on with life, seeking to silence the voice of God. But in many ways, it backfired, because then the Christians stood out, got their own ads on the buses. There definitely is a God awakened the truth, in effect, and you look around nowadays, there's a group called I think it's the New Atheists, Richard Dawkins and Harris and all these. Dawkins wrote this book, God Delusion, in which he was just saying, hey, don't worry. In a matter of time, science will explain everything. There will be no more need for the miraculous or God or any of that. Just give it time. Science will explain everything. So, in effect, trying to silence the church. Some of you may have heard of the book. Then, in answer to Dawkins' God delusion, coming to faith through Dawkins, taking his arguments and whole boom, boom, mistake boom, error, the church will not be silent. The church, if you look at the Book of Acts, persecution leads to the spread of the gospel. So the church, those coming to Christ through analyzing and studying those arguments that Dawkins was proposing. Now, I don't want us to lose sight of this. The Bible is not a science book, okay? Check. However, nothing in the Bible is proved false by science, In reality, when you think about science, who would have been the leaders to bring about science? Christians through the ages amazed at God's creation. Let's study it. How beautiful, how good it is. Christians leading the way in that study. The more we learn about the magnitude of the universe, the more indication there is of a creator. Christians leading the way in that study. We don't need to run and hide from science. The church need not be silent as well. So back to verse 2. Notice the reference there. He has spoken to us by his son. His son. a servant, A servant, a prophet, a servant can represent the master. But when we see the son, we see the father. We see the father, the resemblance. The son is closest. The son is more superior. The son is more privileged than a servant. Okay? When the son, the son now, the son in this passage speaks, we don't need, a thousand years later, additional revelation. The word from the son, the word in his word is final and superlative, final superlative. We don't need a Joseph Smith with his Book of Mormon that comes from the angel Moroni to Joseph Smith in the 1800s, said his word is final. We don't need that, it wouldn't be coming like that. Nor do we need Charles Russell, Charles Taz Russell in the Watchtower Knock, knock, knock. Got something for you. Jehovah's Witnesses on the doorstep. We got the watchtower. I got the Bible. It's chalk and cheese. This is so much better than that. Jesus' word, final and superlative to those other ones. And let's move now. We're going to call this the Magnificent Seven. The Bible loves sevens, right? Number of completeness. Uh, completeness. We're going to see seven statements in the Bible, and when I think Magnificent Seven, best Western of old, best old Western at least. Okay, I don't know about the new Magnificent Seven. Don't need to see it. If you haven't seen it, I've said this before. Go see the old Magnificent Seven. Man, it's it's just the best. I diver, I digress. But seven, seven truths about Christ. So so picture a wheel of the Magnificent Seven seven mags or spindles, seven here, holding this thing perfectly in balance, complete. And so we're going to look at these seven statements here in the passage. Verse two, verse two said, he was appointed the heir of all things. Magnificent, mag number one. Why the heir of all things appointed that? Be careful here. It sounds like it might appear that Jesus became something that he was not, right? Because he was appointed. So you weren't this, now you're this. Oh, you changed. No, no. Time can sometimes be a little confusing in the Bible. But remember, who's outside of time, who's outside of that dimension? God is. And the verb there that's used for appointed, there of all things, is a timeless one. A timeless verb. Simple point heir, owner. He's the heir. He's designated the owner. The inheritor doesn't change in his being, but it's an honor. You are the inheritor. You are the owner of all things. All that we have, he owns. He doesn't need it, but he owns it. He's the inheritor. Magnificent statement number one. Number two, he created the world. Literally, the word there for world is bigger. It's ages, meaning that he created all space, all ages of time, all material, all spiritual, all of it. The creation, he did it. He spoke it. He spoke it. And even on top of that, lest we think that Okay, God spoke it, and you know all the bits and stuff that are out there, He created it, He spoke it. More than that, that means he knew it. He knew it. In, in, this, in this respect, Thomas, Thomas creates music. I know he would tell you, after he pours into that music, he knows that music. Christ knows the creation. So with these first two magnificent statements, this what might have looked to be an impersonal universe is personal. God has appointed his son, and we should look at him, owner and creator, in amazement, in amazement. But instead of awe and looking outward, Howard mentioned at the beginning, we tend to get kind of callous and, oh, yeah, I'm used to that, whatever. Thaddeus Williams puts it it this way. 84% of Americans believe the goal in life is to enjoy it as much as possible. Okay, we get that. Enjoy life as much as possible. But they do that by pursuing what they like best, and they've decided that the best way to do that is to look within. What's best for me? What do I want to do? What makes me feel best? That many Americans. Clearly, his passage say, no, 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 no. Don't look within. That's going to shift and change and psh, look up, look out to the creator. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said, if a man would make his world large, he must make himself small. Even Einstein added on to that. A person starts to live, starts to live when he can live outside himself. So those first two magnificent points are saying Christ's relationship to creation. Now we get two that focus on Christ's relationship to the Father, okay? And here we're going to get our M&M verse, our memorize and meditate verse for the week. Verse 3. That he's the radiance, the radiance of the glory of God. That that he is literally is, is who being. Who being, the radiance of God, meaning Christ is pre-existent, pre-existent, always there, and his being is essential. It's necessary for Christ to be there. He radiates the glory of God. Radiance like bursting out of a brilliant light. You see this picture of light coming forth. You've got the source of the light, and then you've got these rays coming out of the light. Now realize also that, that the light, again, it's not impersonal, it's personal. We saw back in John that the light shines in our hearts. It's a personal light, but this radiance, light from light, light from light, very God from light. Very God. It's one of the reasons that we say in here the Nicene Creed. Light from light. True God from true God. Very God. Back in 325, 325, predecessor to the Jehovah's Witnesses, Arius said, there was a time when Jesus was not. He's a great guy. He's a demigod. He's super powerful. But there was a time when he was not. Athanasius at that same council, stood up to him and said, No, for when has one seen light without effulgence? Fancy word there. This is 325 AD, but radiance. When has there been light without radiance? The Father and the Son, they go together as with the Holy Spirit as well. So quick point of application for us as we think of us and radiance and all that kind of thing. Picture a bunch of broken pieces of glass on the ground, glass and shards and broken. When we seek to glorify ourselves, myself, me, look inside, me, 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 stay a bunch of broken pieces of glass. But when we seek to reflect the radiance, reflect back to the Lord, then we become the mirror, the mirror that we should be to reflect him properly. So we go to verse 3, back in verse 3, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, number four of the magnificent statements: an exact imprint of God's being, same divine substance, same stuff, technical word there, same stuff, same divine substance. Is it sounding a little bit, little bit theological and heady? In one sense, I hope so. Sometimes, Christians, we can kind of dumb some stuff down. But then we go off to work and we wrestle with heady, hard stuff. The author of Hebrews, he's writing to people, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. They got all these Greek scholars going around. So sometimes you got to wrestle with things a little bit. And that's, that's a good thing. The word there, he says, is exact imprint, character. What does that sound like? Exactly our English word where character in a play is resembling somebody, okay? That word there, imprint, character, they would picture the, 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 the emperor's imprint onto a coin is resemblance, resemblance, saying when you see Christ, you see the character, you see the stamp, you see the imprint of Christ. So from the creation, magnificent statements, to the Father, to now how the Son relates to His world. Number five, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. We learned that He created all things. Now we learn that He's upholding, maintaining all things. And He does this with the word of His power the word of his power, the whole universe. I, I can't even keep my office clean for one day. <laughs> By the word of my power, to I'm going to keep it clean. The word of his power, he upholds the universe, the billions of trillions of stars. Sometimes people will say, well, he's just a deist or he's just a watchmaker. Psh, he created it and lets it go and eh, I'm done with it cisericiser what will be whatever it be huh? now as sustainer he maintains he sustains and we know he will triumph it's one of the reasons we love the word transcendent in our mission transcendent truth if we lose sight of god's transcendence then we lose our bearings we lose our bearings if that happens his transcendence keeps us tethered, keeps us tied in. And if we lose a tethering to the truth, we come or we become like Theoden, Lord of the Rings. He's got worm tongue right there. You're weak. You're old. You can't do anything. You're frail. Just sit here. You can't do it. Instead, Gandalf comes in. Gandalf, like Christ, says, Be gone, words of falsehood. Here's the word of truth, the transcendent word of truth that sets us free. Christ's words as the true prophet. So the sixth and seventh then, magnificent statements move from transcendence to what we'll call in Imminence, what do we mean there again? We've gone from the creation his relationship to the Father, relationship to the world, relationship to you. To you. Sitting here next to you. After making purifications, after making purification for sins, for your sins, he sat down at the right hand. He draws near to you. The transcendent Lord of the universe comes near to you and to me. and and, and gives us purification for sins by no merit of yours and mine. What'd you do for it? No, I sinned. (laughs) That's what I contributed. No merit of mine. And after dealing with the sins, the son ascends the throne. Back to that Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, here's the throne. And that Psalm gives us the whole like the background for Hebrews, and we're going to unpack that more as we go. But that's where that Psalm 110 in the call to worship was. He sat down, makes purification for sins, sits down. How many times did a priest in the Old Testament sacrifice one, sacrifice two, ten? I'm going on vacation. Nope no vacation, no seat, never done, never done, Christ sits, done, I'm done, I've completed your purification for sin, amen. The final one, number seven, verse four says this, having become, having become superior, having become, again, We don't want to make the mistake that he became something that he wasn't before, but what does it mean? It means in Philippians 2 where it says, he came and he was humbled and he was humiliated by coming to earth. Christ took on, became humiliated. He's still the same stuff, but he's humiliated. Now he's declared to be superior. His stuff doesn't change, but he's recognized to be superior. Valedictorian of the high school class. This student, you're the smartest. Did they just become the smartest? No, they were declared to be the valedictorian. It didn't change anything in them. They were just recognized with that honor. Recognition, you are superior, didn't change his being, but he's recognized as such. In the context, why does this matter? We're going to hear a lot more about angels even next week. But the Jews had, in a sense, an interest or maybe even an over-interest in angels, kind of worshiping them. For now, we could say in the old angelology, we can just say this simply. Yes, they're real. Yes, angels have roles. Yes, they can be your protector. But no, don't turn. You don't turn into an angel when you die. No, that's not going to happen, and you don't pray to them like our Roman Catholic friends do. Don't do that. Name. Superior to angels as the name. Nowadays, you know, a name distinguishes somebody. You're Austin. I know who Austin is. He's not mad. so don't, this dead name thing, then how do you distinguish somebody? But anyway, back then, names meant something more, meant something more. It described the nature. Jesus' name attained was it Jesus? Was it Christ? His last no. Jesus Christ is not the last name, but it's the name of honor. Son. Talked about son. That's the name here that he obtained, declared son. He's the son. He's the closest, the most intimate relationship with the father. One other thing with the angels, some were acknowledging Jesus to be like an angel. Oh, you're great. You're like an angel. No, the son is more exalted. He's greater than any of the angel, angels. And we think of this with angels too. So bring this closer to home. We're intrigued sometimes. Angels, wow, they're cool. Man, this looks, wow. But angels don't require repentance and faith and change from us. Ah, I just, you're, you're cool, you're powerful, and, you know, caused me to change. The son, the son, yes, he's more important than any angel, and he does call us. He does call us. As your king, I call you to worship, to awe, to change. We could sum it up this way. Here's our last point. Christ, you will hear these terms sometimes. He's our Prophet, priest, and king. And I could have gone through those seven statements and said, See how this one has to do with the prophet? This one has to do with the priest? These are all pointing to Christ as prophet, priest, and king. He's our prophet. His word is final and complete. What does that mean? Listen to him. Listen to him. Not the other little voices. You fail, you can't, you won't, you don't. I was talking to someone just, I think it was yesterday fear, anxiety, voices, voices. Listen to him. Listen to the true voice. Listen to the prophet. Christ is our priest. He purified our sins completely. Therefore, we draw near to him with a table. Maybe you don't feel worthy The world says, you got to do this much, you got to be this much, you got to look this way, young lady, you got to be all this and look this way. Even with this table, Christ is saying, all that matters for you to do, I've done, I've done, come, draw near, I'm your priest, draw near. Finally, Christ is our king. He's exalted. He's reigning. So we worship him with praise and with awe. We worship him. He's the king. We fall and we worship before him. Just early, a couple nights ago, I was at a basketball game. Not to overdo it on the flag, but just doing the national anthem. Everybody's standing. 99.5%. Two teenagers... She's sitting, only one in the stadium, sitting, or gym, sitting, and her sister's doing this. Not respecting the flag, okay? The flag, the people, the the forces who serve so that she could be at the game doing this and sitting on the seat, disrespect. Kind of ticks you off, right? But then all the more, Christ is our king. Christ is our king. How much more if we disrespect him? Does he deserve that? Does he deserve that? And the good thing about him too, he's not going to get ticked off the way I did. My sinful ticked off at the girls for not doing what they should have been doing. But Christ lovingly, lovingly calls us. As your king, The best that you can do is to worship me. It's your best to do that. It's my best to do that in awe. I'm gonna do something just slightly different as we close in prayer. And that's simply this. Just for like a minute or two, I'm gonna open us in prayer and then just give the opportunity. Like if you want to just popcorn prayer, Christ, I praise you because. I praise you because. We'll have a couple minutes of that. And then I will uh, close this as well as we then come to the table.